Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Brian Epstein fully expected 1966 to mirror the previous two years, a Beatles film followed by a soundtrack album and a non-soundtrack album. A third Beatles film had been the promise of a three-picture deal with United Artists, and the expectation was that one more movie would complete the trilogy started by A Hard Day's Night and help. Uh, the potential third film that was mooted is what we are going to discuss today and it's an odd bunch of options that the Beatles pondered the film that never was the film that never was the third Beatles film that never was and of course there were other Beatles films as we know but we mean the kind of the Hard Day's Night Help trilogy there should have been a trilogy it should have been the big feature film the big yes the big 40 foot John Paul George and Ringo on the screen again um the when it, that, that is kind of the pattern that they were trying to do. It, it seems, you know, that they were trying to have a 1966, like 64 and 65. Um, but the big hurdle seems to have been off the top of everything was getting them to, you know, they didn't really enjoy help. They didn't. I mean, I think this is this is probably the biggest hurdle was the fact that, uh, uh, you know, they'd been high as kites, Jason, on the dynamite weed. Oh, I thought it was high on life. They hadn't enjoyed the experience of filming help. They felt, I think, you know, quite rightly, they they were sort of extras in their own film. They were just being moved around uh, different set pieces. I I enjoy help for Mm. all its political incorrectness. Um, You know, I think it's a good good romp. Uh, It's my entry point to the Beatles. I think I've said this before. That's my earliest memory is watching that film. but they didn't have much control over it. And I suppose what we're looking at here in 66 is they are taking control. They're taking control in the studio. They're quitting touring. A lot of things are changing. And um, so I think the criteria for the next film were quite strict. It was going to have to be something that they wanted to do, that they had some kind of input into uh, some degree of control, artistic control. And, you know, Hard Day's Night and Help are two very, very different films. So, you know, speaking in very broad generalities here, you know, Hard Day's Night, black and white. You know, the work on A Hard Day's Night starts long before their global conquest or their global fame. Um, And then Help comes along and it's in full colour. It's got a big budget. The Beatles themselves, the bit they were involved in was saying we want to go all around the world and film in Barbados and film in the Alps and and have a holiday on film paid for. Thanks very much. Yeah, I mean, I would enjoy that. You know, I if would. someone would like to like to pay us to to, to make a film in <laughs> exotic locations and uh, yeah. smoke, you know, pretend to ski and smoke dynamite weed, and <laughs> that, that'd be fine. That'd, that'd be, be absolutely, <laughs> that'd be absolutely fine. But um, yeah, I I think the pressure of touring, the pressure of having to come up with you know four singles, two albums, uh, the the stadium tours in America, and start thinking about a film. But yes. it does just seem to be, yeah, 65 follows 64, 66 is going to be the same. Um, that was the intention. So so there was a lot of focus on this. I mean, I'm obviously... I'm obviously glad help exists. It's an in, it's an interesting example of a rare a rare event, which is an external force trying to mould the Beatles into something that they haven't really created or that they're not really part of. And yeah, you know, their personalities kind of shine through. But it is a it is a romp. But it it's 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 
it's dated in a way that some of their other stuff is certainly not dated. It has. I mean, I think in a way, particularly that Hard Day's Night has not dated. Mm. Um, and it's very much, you know, what's new, Pussycat. You know, all of those those sort of mid-60s, the kind of 65 to 67, you can date a film just by the look of it and, mm. uh, you know, the, 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 the vibe. Um, but I think it's more to do with the fact this lack of creative input. Um, mm. You know, the, the script on Help, I think, was written by Charles Wood. He says he didn't do a very good job on it. He spent 10 days writing the script. Um, you, you know, Dick Lester took the decision to build on the caricatures almost that he had established in Hard Day's Night. So he kind of takes those facets, the quiet one, the sarcastic one, the cute one, and just exaggerates them, mm. uh, you know, for comic effect. Plus, they're absolutely surrounded by fantastic actors and help, which sort yeah. of highlights their own woodenness, you know? Yeah, and those uh, actors I, are a key part of the story. Like, there is no story, really, in A Hard Day's Night, which is part of its no. charm. Uh, it's just larks. Whereas, yeah, the Beatles are kind of... Uh, any band could have made that movie. Now, the Beatles make it better because it's them, but any band could have made it. Yes, and they we know that they have a a, a sort of paranoia about dropping into that kind of uh, production, you know, conveyor belt uh, style. And by 1970, John was saying, this film was out of our control. With A Hard Day's Night, we had a lot of input and it was semi-realistic, but with help, Dick Lester didn't tell us what it was all about. And I think they were probably too busy to find out what it was about or they were too stoned to take in what it was about or the two yes. options of what was actually happening. Yes, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't really care. I think this is the yeah. point. They they uh, they didn't care, and it was just you know, they were filming in the Bahamas for tax reasons. You know, Austria. They fl- it, it was there was no logic to this film at all. But in a way, you know, in its defence, it's a little bit of a parody of that James Bond, you know, yeah. from the Alps to the beach to the the, the secret lair to the you, you know, it's it's a parody of that. James Bond spy movie that was just uh, so endemic at that yes. at that time. And and the kind of the pop art kind of silliness of it, like by 1980, John was saying, I realised looking back how advanced it was. It was a precursor to Batman, the TV show, pow, wow on TV, that kind of stuff. And he's right. It, it's kind of a bright, shiny piece of 1965, bright colours, yeah. you know, very, very pleasant to look at, as you say. It's a nice way to pass the time. Um, but the reviews were mixed, to say the least. Like they're, they're, the, the contemporary reviews of A Hard Day's Night were very, very, very high praise. And people really picked up immediately what a classic film it was. Whereas Help, people could sense that... I, I, I guess that the thing you keep in the back of your mind about all these things and thinking about the, the movies that we're going to talk about today is what Elvis Presley was doing at the time. Yes, and I think they had been such fans of Elvis in the early days and then there was that corresponding disappointment mm. um, you know and I think when they meet Elvis there's a there's a reference to Elvis is saying oh I've just finished a film and Lennon says you know ah, well, let's just make one of your films right now you know it's it's, <laughs> it's it's there is just this terrible fear I suppose that you're just going to descend into that production line each film is slightly worse than yeah. the one that went before and it's just never ending and they're absolutely determined not to do that and they become cartoon characters in help um, or at least as far as they can take it without tipping over into self-parody. So there were three main options that kind of came their way when they were trying to decide what their third film should be. So the initial plan was to try and get a movie on the blocks for the first half of 1966 as they had in 64 and 65 and that's the first uh, film that we're going to talk about today which is what? A Talent for Loving. Hmm. Uh, which was based on a book by Richard Condon. You may know him <laughs> from such films and books as The Manchurian Candidate in 1959, which is a great, it's a that, great book. That's a good I, film. <laughs> that's a good film. Yeah. Um, so he's, a, he's a, an American sort of political novelist. I think he used to be an ad man and copywriter in Hollywood. His books are that kind of political satire, but they're turned into these... these uh, thrillers uh, and say so the Manchurian Candidate is probably uh, the, the, the most famous or the most well-known so it's it, it's it's coming from a good pedigree stable yeah 
And this is the film that in this is the 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 you know this is the film that gets announced in 1965. This is the thing that they're doing in 65 to plan for 66. And I've I've taken a a, a copy of uh, what the book is about. Uh, can I read this out? Because it sounds. So are you going to do the voices? <laughs> no, I'm not. Well, what like a movie voice in the 16th yeah. century? No, no, I did, yeah, I, 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 I thought you know, or should I get some coconuts to do the horses, or you know, uh, I mean, well, here's what the book is about, and let's see, can we imagine? Because uh, the 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 script was a little bit different, but the book is in the 16th century, an Aztec priest has cut off his own hand and used the bloody stump to lay a curse upon a blasphemous Spanish conquistador and all his direct descendants. The curse. That once any of the descendants, whether male or female, have tasted physical love, even in the form of a single kiss, they will spend the rest of their lives as being nearly sexually insatiable. Three centuries later, the beautiful young virginal daughter of a fabulously wealthy Texas rancher and gambler is its latest victim. An elaborate set of contests and races is arranged to choose which of the two cowboys will win her hand in marriage. Um, so it's a western, classic western. You say this is. You say this. This. You say this is a. Cur- this is a curse. <laughs> well, you'd be exhausted, wouldn't you? I Jeez. suppose so. Because um, the book is subtitled The Great Cowboy Race, and it's it's kind of a farcical repurposed for the Beatles. They were going to be Liverpudlian cowboys or something. Yes, there seems to be some big notion that they've got, you know, there's some backstory that, that strands them in the, in the Wild West, but they're still from Liverpool. Um, it's perfectly believable. It's a story as old as time itself. <laughs> well, it's 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 weird that they persisted with this movie as the number one lead contender option for 1966. When you know it's it's it seems to be full of sexualized content, which wouldn't necessarily have been uh, even for the 65 66 wasn't necessarily on the screen an awful lot. Um, well, I suppose, you know, sexualized content for 1965 or 1966 is maybe still quite tame by today's standards, <laughs> I would have po- thought. Possibly. Um, but the, the, the daughter is like a nymphomaniac, isn't that the, the, the notion in the film? This is like pre-candy <laughs> kind of stuff. You can't, you, you can't just label people like that, Jason. <laughs> right, we've, okay, we've moved, fine. We've moved, we've moved beyond These are labels. lifestyle choices, is that right? Okay, I see. <laughs> And anyway, she's she's acting involuntary under on involuntarily under an ancient Aztec curse. Well, we've, oh, all right. been there. we've all been there. Yes, it's so relatable this story. Uh, which <laughs> of us can honestly say we've not been uh, subject to an ancient Aztec curse? Yeah, but it does seem odd. Uh, it but does this seem odd. Well, it's odd. Shen- it's a Western as well, you know. Well, you know how good did they all look? Particularly George on the back of uh, Robert Soul, dressed in their cowboy hats. And yeah, that's uh, true. You know, if somebody gave you an option to record this podcast in a Stetson, you'd be fine with that. I uh, wouldn't mind. <laughs> you know, you kind of you kind of got a poncho thing going on this evening. Yeah. That's, uh... <laughs> that's what I wear for my YMCA podcast or my oh, Village see. People podcast. Anyway, continue. So this is Walter Shenson has yes. brought this this to them, and yeah, it is actually announced as being the next film project, um, but then. You know, after they finish their final UK concert in Cardiff, that's a pub quiz question, uh, <laughs> John, Paul, George and Brian sit down uh, at NEMS Enterprise uh, offices in Argyle Street to review the script. And by the end of the meeting, they've decided, no, we're not doing that. Um, yes. They don't seem... So you kind of get a sense, you know, they're in the middle of a tour, they're kind of running around. Someone says, yeah, we've got the script. And then when they actually have time to stop, take a look at it, they pass. I mean, it's, 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 I'm glad that when they were making the decision about whether or not to do a potentially crappy Western, Ringo wasn't in the room. That's, 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 that's good to know. You think, you think, do you think they deliberately met without Ringo? Where was Ringo? <laughs> I mean, I think uh, out of any of the four Beatles, and I don't mean to be mean, but if any one of them wanted to make a movie a year like Elvis Presley, it was Ringo. You yeah. know? And particularly 100%. Western. Yes. Particularly a Western. I think he'd, you know... He'd be plugged into that totally. He'd be plugged into that. He'd, he'd write the theme song. Um, so they, they throw the script in the bin. So in our Rubber Soul episode, we talked about how, you know, they do this kind of very slapdash, very quick tour of England right at the end yeah. of 65. And at the end of that tour, they're reading this script with a notion that this will be, a, you know, first half of 1966. And so by the end of that meeting, this is one of the key things that makes their 1966 so empty in in terms of what their calendar ha- has for them. They, they, they end up essentially clearing out by accident the first three to four months of 66. 
Yes, that was set aside for, for filming. And mm. uh, so, suddenly that's gone. So yeah, they throw the script in the bin, but uh, Walter Shenson retrieves it from the bin. And uh, <laughs> He should have made more than one copy. That was his first He should mistake. have made more than one copy. They, the, the film is made. Yeah. And uh, we've watched it. No, we haven't watched it. I haven't no, watched I it. Have you watched no, it? No, 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 no. I haven't. I haven't watched it. Uh, made it a film in 1969. Richard Widmark and uh, Cesar Romero. Hmm. And Topol yeah. is in it as well, apparently. Well, uh, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, so and, be great. And, and, and it was produced by Walter Shenson. So he stuck with it. He well, you know, um, if anybody there has, uh, at home has seen it, uh, let me know. Um, th- th- just as a, a side note, there's another little project that's kind of bubbling around at that time, which is uh, Disney's The Jungle Book. And yes. there's a notion that the Beatles are going to be in The Jungle Book, which they never do. They never do. But this is the first film I ever saw in the cinema. Really? Yes, that's I'm that, I'm that old. Um, <laughs> well, I think it was it was it was sort of they begin. I, I can't imagine I saw it in the late sixties. I'd have been you know a tiny child. Tiny uh, in the late sixties. Must have been one of those um, regular reissues. It, it must used have been. to be. It, it used to be Disney films would only kind of appear every couple of years in the yep. pre-streaming era. <laughs> they just sort of poke their head up, or they'd appear on video for a week or two and then disappear again. Now you can't get rid of them, but thank, thank heavens for Disney Plus. You can Absolutely. listen to this Disney on Plus. Disney Plus. We love Disney Plus. All the Plus. time, dear. Get um, back, everybody. Disney Plus. Disney Plus. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yes, this film, this film begins, uh, do, you, do you begin filming or do you begin animating? Drawing, uh, in, sketching. In, uh, in, in May of 1966. And the, the idea is that the Beatles will appear voicing a character and then they will make a live appearance at some point at the end of the film which is shades of yellow submarine. Mm. But apparently it's Lennon is is absolutely against this. You know, he's not doing it. And I suppose Disney, you know, nowadays Disney Plus, get back, cutting yeah. edge, great, you know, absolutely fantastic company, please send more free stuff. But you know, I suppose it's not their image. It's not they don't want to be associated with uh Disney. Yeah, and it's uh, it's uh, if anyone's seen the Disney Jungle Book, there are these vultures with mop top haircuts in it, and whether that's what the Beatles were intended to be, or whether that's a bit of a reaction to the Beatles not getting involved, or somewhere in between, is probably the truth of it. You know, they are a nod to the Beatles; those four vulture characters. Yeah. I had forgotten that that was. You know, I, I certainly when I saw the film as a kid, that was yeah. that didn't mean anything to me. But it, they're terrible. It, oh, it's, it's not, awful. It's awful. And they're, they're not Liverpudlian accents. They're kind of weird. You know, it's like Austin Powers level <laughs> attempt at English. Groovy, uh, you, baby. You know. Yeah. And it's uh, Chad Stewart of Chad and Jeremy. Hmm. And they sing a song called That's What Friends Are For. Brackets. The Vulture Song. Close brackets. <sighs> well, a, a lost opportunity. The Beatles could have made it big if they'd said yes they, they, to they that. They think... think think what they could have done but uh if they'd done it they could have appeared in the remake in 2016 which john favreau um he of making the avengers and the mandalorian and swingers and all, or, yeah and all that kind of stuff um he tried to get uh paul and ringo in the 2016 remake for no particular reason apparently so so he he said uh at the time he said we don't have the beetle vultures i did talk about trying to get paul and ringo into the film because they wanted the beatles for the original but i couldn't get them we came to the idea too late. Maybe if there's a sequel. Now, I have to say, I think that would have been funny in 2016. <laughs> Nobody would have understood why Paul and Ringo were in the middle of a live action remake of The Jungle Book. That's why it would have been funny. <laughs> uh, t- total side point. Have you seen Paul's appearance in that Pirates of the Car- Caribbean movie? Yes. I mean, who does he think he is? Keith Richards? It, it felt longer than, uh, give my regards to Broad Street, that one scene that he's in, I will tell you <laughs> it that is, much. It is terrible. It is terrible. Um, uh, so, yeah. so, so the Beatles throw uh, movie number one, A Talent for Loving, in the bin. Uh, by magic, they clear their calendar for the start of 1966. Um, but they still have a contractual obligation to deliver a film. So Walter Shenson for It Is He, again in 1966, is trying to... Um, um, you know, pull another Beatles film together. That's still his number one role. That's his job. That's his job. United Artists 
they have a contract, they have lawyers, and it's almost a year goes by, it's into late 66, and he's still, you know, Shenson is still talking about this, and he's saying, oh, well, any new Beatles movie would have to be contemporary. They don't want to do a period story. There had been some suggestion floating around about the Three Musketeers or the Four Musketeers, mm. or, uh, you know, so, and so he's saying, no, this is not going to be a period piece, not going to be a Western, not going to be ancient Aztec curses. It's going to be something contemporary. And you're thinking at this time, you know, We've got that second wave of British film, you know, Alfie and Michael Caine. And, and uh, you think, would they have, would that be a good... That kind of blow-up world. What he says is, uh, in the next Beatles film, they would not be playing the Beatles, but, quote, four characters who look, think and talk like the Beatles, but are, in fact, different characters. Now, does that remind you of anything? Um, well, the Beatles um, being themselves but not being themselves is a bit Sergeant Peppery. Is that the notion? I I think is there not are there not shades of that? There is, I suppose there is. I mean, it's late nineteen sixty six. They are post their last uh, gig. They are trying to rethink and reevaluate what they are or what they appear to be. So all those things. It's all part of the soup, really, isn't it? Yeah, so they're they're sort of saying, you know, we're we're not going to be the Beatles, we're going to be something else. So are they, uh, they, they, but they can't, they're not really talking about being characters. You know, they're not going to be but suddenly become great character actors overnight. So they've got to find something that in which they can be the Beatles, but not be the Beatles. And they come up with something in early '67 called Shades of a Personality. Hmm. And what is Shades of a Personality about? Well. This is one man with a split personality. Uh, so John would be playing uh, the main character, Stanley Grimshaw. It's mm-hmm. very good, very good northern. Yeah, kind of name. Um, and then there would be three other aspects of his personality played by Paul, George and Ringo. Fair enough. Now, this is, uh, this is an idea that sort of bubbles around in cinema a lot, you know. Yeah, this um, sort of I'm, one person doing other things, or the kind of the hearing the thoughts, or his, you know, I'm thinking of like the that Inside Out movie from Pixar, or you know, the Numbskulls cartoon, or um, there's a, I see there's where a, you're, I see where you're pitching it, you know. <laughs> well, I wouldn't mind that. There's a there's a Steve Martin film called All of Me, which is like one person in a body of another person, and all these kind of Freaky Friday type movies, and even spoiler alert, Fight Club, you know. So there's. Um, you know, it's, uh, although all those movies kind of post-date this one, you know, so it's a bit of a high concept maybe for a 67 audience. Well, I think, I think, I think that is what I would say. This is, you, you know, to be a Beatles film, to follow mm. help, this is a bit of a high concept. And yeah. I suppose it, it, it does commend itself to them initially. You know, they, 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 you know, in August 66, George is saying, somebody gave us a good idea. We told them to go and write it into a script won't really be able to tell if we're going to be make the film until we've read the script. Um, but if it's a good one and we like it, we'd probably start January, February or March or December. So uh, this is very much late 66, early 67, they're going to be making a film. Um, and they get uh, a chap called Owen Holder, who's a mm-hmm. TV screenwriter, and he goes and uh, sort of works up uh, a script and he, he comes up with 109 pages of script. Uh, they've got a budget lined up. The group are offered more creative input into this and it seems to tick all the boxes. But late 66, early 67, something else gets in the way. Well, there's other stuff going on, isn't there? There's there's a, the, the movie has a working title of Beatles 3 and there's there's a, you know treatments and scripts available uh, about August, September 66. And as you say, 109 pages. The little bit I know about movie scripts is apparently uh, one page is a minute of film time. There you go. So that would have been 109 minutes of film. Um, but by the time they get into that little gap before they're into Strawberry Fields and Pepper recording at the end of November, start of December, they're all off doing their, their different things. So if there was any notion of getting something done in that gap, they're all busy. Yeah, they're all busy. So uh, George is in India. John is yeah. off in the autumn of 66 uh, in uh, filming How I Won the War with Dick Lester. Paul is pretending to write the f- score for Family <laughs> Way. <laughs> Steady. <laughs> Sorry, Paul is writing the score for The Family Way. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, Ringo is uh, being husband and father yeah. to his children. 
And cutting hair and selling bricks and, or whatever it is he yeah, does in his spare builders. time. Yeah, <laughs> there is some downtime and they all sort of head off in different directions yeah. uh, to do different things. And this is really the first time since, you know, please, please me, love me do. They're going and doing individual projects. They're doing separate things. And I'm, just thinking, I think, uh, I'm thinking, I'm just thinking, like, when I, mean, I think of a rock band and rock music where you know, a four-piece rock band where each of the members has a personality that's reflected in the music. I can't think of any album or film that uh, that uh, stole that idea. Uh, or can you? Well, I'm thinking if they threw this script in the bin, was there somebody else who would have picked this script out would of the Pete bin? Would Pete Townsend have reached in and pulled that uh, script out of the there's, bin? And there's, there's an idea. It is, you know... It, it's Quadrophenia-ish. It's, it's, well, it's, Quadrophenia it's has the four themes of the four members of the band and all the rest. So it's it's yeah, it's it's a thing. Um, but they they when we get to that end of '66 period, they decide to jettison um, uh, Owen Holder's draft of Shades of a Personality, but not the whole idea itself. Because now we get into the you know film to be i suppose <laughs> film to be. Now we get into the good stuff. Uh, yeah. So Walter Shenson, I think. Uh, recognizes this as the bones of a good idea. And mm. um, so he, he decides there's something here in this script that we can work with. And uh, he decides I need to bring in another writer. And I suppose this is a common enough. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, you get another writer in to kind of punch it up. And the guy that he goes to is Joe Orton. Now, who he, Stephen? Who he, Joe Orton. Uh, Joe Orton is an absolutely fascinating character. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast will know who Joe Orton is. Mm. But um, he was a playwright, fairly notorious playwright, um, was the sort of scandalizing English theater uh, at the time. Um, By way of background, he uh, studied at RADA. He met his boyfriend Kenneth Halliwell at RADA in the early 50s. So he's not, you know, he's not kind of a, a 20-year-old. He's he's sort of older. He's sort of the same generation, I think, as, as uh, Brian Epstein. He's the exact same age as Brian Epstein. And, um, but he's he's almost like an anti-Brian in a way in that he's... He is. He's very out and about and in yes. your face uh, in terms of his lifestyle, which was not a, a, a mid-60s way of doing things necessarily. No. Um, and I say he is scandalizing polite society and loving the fact that he is scandalizing polite <laughs> society. And um, there's a really funny uh, story from his background. So in, in January 1959, uh, Orton and Kenneth Halliwell begin taking books from public libraries and amending the covers. So they, they put the books back, but they have altered the covers. So they're, they're, they're putting new... <laughs> They've made new, them nicer and gen, more genteel, correct? More genteel. They've made them less genteel. So they oh. have put, the, you know, they put pictures of naked men, naked women, <clears> uh, they, <throat> you know, and they just put these back on the library shelves. And then the idea is that little old ladies will come along to take the library book out and, um, well, you know, quite literally get an eyeful. <laughs> but you think that that is it. And there's a very funny appearance where he gives an interview it's on youtube and he's talking about this and um he said you know we got six months mm. in prison for doing this and and someone says i forget who it was, uh, I, I want to say it's zsa Zsa gabor he says well why my darling would you get six months for defacing a library book and he said uh, oh well it was hundreds of library books i mean it was hundreds <laughs> of library books and the irony is that all of those books, or a lot of those defaced covers, are now on display in Islington Museum, which is part of Islington Library. So they have become art pieces yeah. in themselves. You know, yeah. um, I never knew that. I, I lived in Islington myself. I'll have to go back and uh, back in the day. I'll have to go back and, and find out uh, what they look like. But uh, I don't want to be too scandalised. You know, you don't very, want to be too scandalised. Well, yeah, I would give it a year or two before. I'm very you, reserved. Uh, you know me quite. I, I do. I do. Uh, <laughs> now the one thing we are lucky about with with Joe Orton is that he kept a diary. Now this is gold. If you want to be scandalised, you read those diaries, Jason. <laughs> well, it's good that we have the diary because he does help. Um, you know, he obviously was thinking of podcasters of the future. That was his number one reason for keeping a diary, um, because it does fill in the gaps about what happens next. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's very, very detailed account of what happens next. So Shenson uh, has apparently mentioned Joe Orton's name to the Beatles, who seem to have given him the OK. And uh, we sort of couch it in those terms because Orton says that what Shenson said is, I've discussed it with the boys. I mean, I've mentioned your names to them, name to them. They've heard of you. Well, they didn't react too much, I must say. But I think <laughs> I could persuade them to have you. So he's, he's really not selling it. Wow. Yeah. You know, but Orton is a huge fan of the Beatles, uh, although, you know, didn't rate them particularly as actors. And he does mention in January 67, the Beatles are getting fed up with the Dick Lester type of direction. They want dialogue to speak difficult. This, as I don't think any of the Beatles can act <laughs> in any accepted sense. Yes, but he does decide that he's going to take a look at this script, the Holder script, um, and see what is doable. And he's not, uh, you know, he's he's a playwright, and he's had he's had plays uh, produced, um, including one called Loot, which has had a certain investor, a certain P. McCartney has uh, in, yes. in, inve- yeah invested a thousand pounds, which uh, is about twenty thousand pounds in today's money. So it's not hmm. a casual. Uh, it's not a casual investment. Uh, well, maybe it, maybe it is for Paul, I don't know. <laughs> well, it probably was at that time. Loot is a dark farce where two young thieves rob a bank next to a funeral parlour um, and they uh, return to the other side to hide the money and the money is hidden in the coffin of the dead mother of one of the thieves and her body keeps appearing around the house in a farcical fashion. Uh, again, it's a standard standard tale of everyday life. Yes, it's obviously based on a, a true story. I guess it's like, um, I'm going to say very in a very reductive fashion, it sounds like Weekend at Bernie's to me, but it's not Weekend at Bernie's. Oh, it's so not. It is. Have you ever seen the film? Weekend at Bernie's? Yeah, it's great. Oh, sorry. Film, I have not film, seen the, the, the film. The film of, of Loot. You, would, you no. would like the film of Loot because the screenplay is by Galton and Simpson. Oh, yeah. Uh, based on the play, um, and it stars Lee Remick and Hugh Bennett. Okay. So, there you go. Um, I, I recommend it. I recommend it. Uh, it's very, very funny. And the London Evening News called it, uh, i just checked the notes, one of the most revolting things I've ever seen. I'm sold. <laughs> and once you've, once you've seen that, then move on to uh, entertaining Mr. Sloan, which is even worse or better, depending <laughs> on your point of view. End of part one. Intermission. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. End of intermission. Part two. So even though he's a player, he's never actually written a, a movie script as such. Um, but he takes this uh, Holder script, uh, reads it over two days and kind of likes the idea, basically. Yeah. Um, so he it, it's this idea of the split personality thing remains. And hmm. he seems to like that approach. And he immediately identifies the possibility for... Uh, Sexual shenanigans, Jason. Oh, jeez. Oh, no. That, that won't do. Um, uh, so, plus, and because plus I, th- I, think, I think also the money is a big, is a big well, draw. That's, that's the thing, because thanks to the diaries, we know that um, the, essentially he's, uh, he's, he's you know, looking for an advance of about £10,000, which is about 100000 in today's money. Exactly. Um, which is, you know, kind of the average salary at the time is about a thousand a year. The average house price is three thousand. So, that is a good sum of money. That and and people don't really blink at that kind of uh, no. advance for him. 
it's it's a it's a crazy amount of money. And he has lunch with Shenson, and it the, the lunch ends with him with Shenson saying, "Don't be surprised if a beetle rings you up." So he immediately gets on the phone to his agent and says, <laughs> 10,000 be damned. Ask for fifteen thousand." So he gets a hundred effectively a hundred and fifty thousand pounds for doing this script. And there is a clause in the contract that says if they don't pick up the script, he can buy it back. Amazing. I mean, you know, nowadays it'd be like, uh, could you write that script for free? Just think of the exposure you would get yes. if you could just contribute some content to the Beatles' next movie project. Thanks very much. Um, so he 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 starts working on the script and he incorporates elements of other um Material, so it's it's uh, uh, it says elements from a novel called uh, The Silver Bucket, yep. uh, written in 1953, and the vision of Gumbold Provel, which was a novel he wrote as well. So he kind of strips back the the Holder script and starts all over again. Yeah, he's basically um, you know if you've got material and someone's paying you 150 thousand pounds, you just cannibalize your past work and uh, flesh out a script. And by the 24th of January, 1967, he's got a meeting at uh, NAMS in Argyle Street um, to meet the Beatles. And they all turn up. No, wait a sec. No. None of them they, turn up. None of them turn up. <laughs> and and um, Peter Brown is sent to, to Peter explain. Peter Brown calls to say. <laughs> Peter Brown calls to say they're not coming. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, so at that stage, Brian is, is Brian Epstein's uh, PA, and uh, Orton writes in his diary, "I was a bit chilly in my manner after that." And uh, Brian says, "Oh, well, you, you know, I'll get you another appointment." He said, "Well, what guarantee is there that you won't break that? I think you better find yourself another writer." And gets up to leave, and you think that's that takes you know, chutzpah mm-hmm. to, to say I'm just going to walk out. Um, Brian comes back with Brian Epstein. Yes. And Brian and, kind of placates him with the offer of a dinner that evening with Paul. And in his diary, he wrote, I'd imagined Epstein to be florid, Jewish, dark haired and overwhelming. Inside, I was face to face with a mousy haired, slight young man. Just kind of bitchy, really. Yeah. Um, so Brian, as you say, tries to settle things over and says, hey, do you want to, you know, come for dinner and I'll bring Paul McCartney over and it'll all be great, that kind of, that chestnut. Yeah, and I'll, I'll send a car to pick you up. Yes. Um, so Orton says, that's fine, I'll come for dinner, but I'm getting the bus in a kind of Joe Orton way. Yes. Um, and he, he recounts what happens next in Extremis in his diaries, which the diaries are eventually published in uh, about 1986. Um, so what happens next? This is like a play in itself. Yes. This, this actually could be a play. It reminded me of uh, Rawlinson End by uh, oh, yes. Vivian Stanchel. <laughs> the Wrinkled um, Retainer. Yes. 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 Um, so in the diary, he says, I rang the bell and an old man opened the door. He seemed surprised to see me. Is this Brian Epstein's house? I said, yes, sir, he said, and led the way into the hall. I suddenly realised the man was a butler. I'd never seen one before. <laughs> he took my coat and I went to the lavatory. When I came out, he'd gone. There was nobody about. I wandered around a large dining room, which was laid for dinner, and then I got to feel strange. The house appeared to be empty, so I went upstairs to the first floor. I heard music, although I couldn't decide where it came from. So I went further upstairs and found myself in a bedroom. I came down again and found the butler. He took me into a room and said in a loud voice, Mr. Orton. Everybody looked up and stood to their feet. I was introduced to one or two people and Paul McCartney. He was just as the photographs, only he'd grown a moustache. His hair was shorter too. He was playing the latest Beatle recording, Penny Lane. I liked it very much. Then he played the other side, Strawberry Something. I didn't like this as much. There you go. <laughs> so he's one of the first. I, you know, I do love this pattern of Paul constantly playing people the new songs yes. that they're working on. It's very sweet and endearing. Like when he calls into the pub and plays "Hey Jude," or when he's, yeah. you know, um, you know, at a party, or whatever, and says, "Oh, just listen to this," you know. And uh, you know, he continues in his diary. Um, you know, we talked intermittently, that's Joe Orton and Paul. Uh, before we went out to dinner, we'd agreed to throw out the idea of setting the film in the 30s. We went down to dinner, the crusted old retainer, looking too much like a butler to be good casting, busied himself in the corner. The only thing I get from the theatre, Paul McCartney said, is a sore arse. Um, which is a bit, uh, it's a, a bit of a provocative thing to say, to try and maybe stir things up and see where people stand, you know. 
Well, he does say he does say Lute was the only player he hadn't wanted to leave before the end. He was hoping to get his money back. Yeah, I was going to say if I'd invested twenty thousand pounds, I wouldn't be leaving before the end. Uh, I'd have liked a bit more of loot, he said to Joe Wharton, which I think is funny, you know, just, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, such small portions. Um, uh, we talked of the theatre. I said that compared to the pop scene, the theatre was square. The theatre started going downhill when Queen Victoria knighted Henry Irving, I said. Too respectable. I've left out some cursing there. Um, the, the, uh, I, I'm sure that's a reference that maybe did not um, land with Paul McCartney, but I'm sure he I, pretended to understand what he was talking about. I'm sure about. he did. Well, Paul was very culturally aware at the time, so... Uh. Yes. And... Um, uh, they, they they seem to then the conversation moves on to drugs and the atmosphere relaxes a little bit so um, the, you know they, they all relax and watch a programme on TV which is is that kind of what people did in those days I don't know in the 60s I don't know but it's very telling because he says he, he, he describes this programme and he says it had phrases in it like the in crowd and swinging London and you get you get a sense of his absolute disdain for mm. the in crowd and swinging London. So the fact that he is sitting in the swingingest, innest place in London, you know, he's sitting in Brian Epstein's house with Paul McCartney. It doesn't get more swinging than that. Um, but yet he's still looking askance at that. And um, and then he says, there was a scratching at the door, which is a very vivid uh, image. I thought it was the old retainer, but someone got up to open the door and about five very young and pretty boys trooped in. I rather <laughs> hope this was the evening's entertainment. It wasn't, though. It was the Easy Beats. <laughs> have yeah. You, have you seen the Easy Beats? They're, they're entertaining to me. They are, but I, w- I, would, I, I wouldn't say they were pretty particularly, but, uh, you know, it's uh, George Young. It's Angus Young's brother from ACDC. That is correct, yes. Um Friday on my mind. Anyway, after a while, Paul McCartney said, let's go upstairs. Well, you imagine that was uh, an invitation to treat. Uh, So (laughs) he and I and Peter Brown went upstairs to a room also fitted with a TV. And again, you get a sense, two TVs. That's That's that's, very fancy. A French photographer arrived with two beautiful youths and a girl. He'd taken a new set of photographs of the Beatles. They wanted one to use on the record sleeve. Excellent photograph. And the four Beatles looked different with their moustaches, like anarchists in the early years of the century. It's all incredibly arch and, you know, dramatic. After a while, we went downstairs. The Easy Beats were still there. The girl went away. I talked to the leading Easy Beat. (laughs) I'm I'm sure that was a pleasant... Uh, uh, feeling slightly like an Edwardian masher with a gaiety girl. And then I came over tired and decided to go home. I had a last word with Paul M. Well, I said, I'd like to do the film and there's only one thing we've got to fix up. You mean the bread, said Paul. Yes, we smiled and parted. I got a cab home. It was pissing down. It's all very vivid, isn't it? It's just fantastic stuff. Um, and off he goes and he delivers a draft of Up Against It on the 25th of February, which he expected to be rejected. He notes in his diary um, uh, on the 11th of February 1967, the boys in my script have become have been caught in flagrante, become involved in dubious political activity, dressed as women, committed murder, put in prison and committed adultery. Um, so, you know, one for the mums and dads, obviously. <laughs> um <laughs> And so the, 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 he submits the script at the end of February and it's kind of radio silence, isn't it? Yeah, nothing. No response. <laughs> nothing at mm. all. Months go by. Uh, and then the script comes back with no covering letter. Nothing. It's just, there's your script back. And Joe Orton is happy? Do you want, I, I, do you want me to read this out? Uh, do you want me to yeah, read this why out? don't you read this out, Jess? I read this out because you have children. Um <laughs> <laughs> and apparently Brian Epstein had no comment to make either. Fuck him. Yeah, that's a great diary, isn't it? Um, but, I mean, Paul did give a reason eventually. What was Paul's reason for, for not doing the film? <laughs> this is even better. This is, this is, this is excellent. Orton assumed, assumed that the, the script was really just too over the top. But Paul says, the reason we didn't do Up Against It wasn't because it was too far out or anything. We didn't do it because it was gay. We weren't gay. And really... That was all there was to it. It was quite simple, really. Brian was gay, and so he and the gay crowd could appreciate it. Now, it wasn't that we were anti-gay. It's just that we, the Beatles, we weren't gay. Um, geez, that, uh, that sentence had the word gay in it a lot. Why here did you say that exactly? Um, <laughs> I don't think you'd say question. that now. I, well, I, I, think, is that, is the, I think it might be in 
many years many from years now. From yeah, now. Yeah, I think it? I think it's I think it's not. Uh, uh, I, I I think it's not that he said it. You know, if it, if his antenna was up, that's the way the pop culture radar was going in the early seventies. With uh, he wasn't you know, really anticipating. Uh, he wasn't really anticipating know. that. You know, um, do we need to go through the plot of the, the the movie? We should say when it was revised is 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 now got a new title. It's called Up Against It. Uh, that that's what the movie was 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 going to be called. Um, do we need to go through the plot? It's a um, it's a classic story, tale as old as time. It is a classic story. Well, I just I, Joey just kind of I just I just quickly yeah. through this. Now this is this is Orton revised the plot um, mm. from the Beatles. So he basically cuts it down from four to three leads. And see if you you see if you can recognise anybody in this. Um, the screenplay begins with the expulsion from a provincial town, that'd be Liverpool, of two young men of no fixed ambition, Ian McTurk and Christopher Lowe. Ian Paul is and John, a, I guess. Ian is a sexually profligate charmer. Oh, Paul. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uh, Christopher Lowe is quixotic and pure of heart. They are banished because Ian has deflowered Rowena Torrance, niece of the local priest, Father Brody. Oh dear. You can see that that's a good setup for the Beatles. You can see that... Um, yeah. Um, wandering the woods outside of town, Christopher meets and winds up at the mansion of eccentric millionaire Bernard Coates, where he becomes a sex slave. Ah. Yada, 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 yada. <laughs> meets up <laughs> meets up with uh, Jack Ramsey, who I think is the Ringo George character, whose plan is to assassinate the new female prime minister. Uh, right. They drag up, get into the Albert Hall. Jack guns down the PM. They escape. Right. Good. Uh, they disrupt the prime minister's funeral uh, with a speech in favour of public debauchery. Riot ensues. Ian is captured. Jack and Christopher are killed. Ian spends 10 years in prison before... The miraculously still living and patiently tunnel digging Jack uh, helps them make their escape through a sewer. They get into a luxury yacht. They find Christopher. There's a mad tea party. They're caught in a storm. They get involved Mm -hmm. in a war. Uh, They all go (laughs) off to battle. They're all taken prisoner, only to be given medals and honoured as heroes. And the love interest, who's kind of been weaving in and out of the story, accepts a proposal of marriage to all three of them. And the screenplay ends with the bride and three grooms in polygamous morning after intimacy disappearing with squeals of delight under the conjugal sheets. Hmm. Well, now, as I said, Taylor's oldest time. It's no give my regards to Broad Street. No, what that movie needs is a missing master tape. That'd be exciting, wouldn't it? <laughs> and a and dream you have sequence. To go look for, and a dream sequence. That'd be great. Yeah, it's more like a, give my regards to the broadsheets, am I right? Huh? Uh, see what I, I did see there? what you did there. I see what you did Thanks, there. Man. Thanks. Um, that. But he did re- rework it. So he reworks it and Dick Lester is on board and uh, they've decided to cast Mick Jagger and mm-hmm. Ian McCallum. Uh, yeah, and this all moves pretty quickly because this is the summer of 67 that there is a, a notion that this is what's going to happen. Um, now, people who know what happens next in the life of Joe Orton know what happens next, but it's it's pretty shocking what happens it's next. A sh- it is a shocking story. So Orton is initially delighted, not least because, you know, it's the same script, essentially. He's been optioned for a second time. He's got a second large uh, fee. There's a meeting arranged for the 9th of August at Twickenham uh, with uh, Oscar Lewinstein, the producer and Dick Lester. Lewinstein sends a Rolls Royce to pick Orton up in his Islington flat on the morning of the 9th of August 1967, but the chauffeur gets no answer. He looks through the letterbox and he sees Orton's boyfriend, Kenneth Hallowell, lying unconscious on the floor of the hall. And essentially what has happened is Hallowell has read Orton's diaries and in a kind of fit of jealous rage attacks Orton and kills him with a hammer and then takes an overdose. And although he's alive when, when he's fine, he, he subsequently dies. And it's just, it's like something out of one of his own plays. Yeah. There's this kind of tragic end to, to what was a hugely promising uh, career. So, uh, and as I say, Orton is a huge fan of the Beatles and at his funeral uh, is cremation they play A Day in the Life as uh, his uh, as he's brought in to yeah. the crematorium it's yeah it's a shocking end he'd, he'd only be 89 years if he was alive today um, so uh, a huge huge uh, loss 
the up against it does does continue though it does have an afterlife it does have an afterlife so it gets published uh, the, the revised version gets published in 1979 the original Beatles script has never been published and it ends up off Broadway in the late 1980s with music by uh, Todd Rundgren hmm and uh, yeah so the uh, and, and several of the songs uh, make it onto Nearly Human and Second Wind which are Rundgren albums I don't think it was particularly big hit at the time uh, no, Nearly Human's a good record. And um, uh, Alec Baldwin uh, made his Broadway debut replacing Kevin Bacon. He's our nemesis. Our arch rival. <laughs> um, is, is there. And uh, I remember there was a radio play as well. I remember this in, in 1997 because um, uh, Damon Alburn was in it and that was like a very big Britpop kind of get. It's and a very Britpop thing to do, isn't it? Yes. And it has kind of Beatles songs in it and um, Prunella Scales and Leo McKern from Help is in the Clang. 1997 radio play version Clang himself <laughs> <laughs> Leo Clang um, McKern as nobody has ever called him he is uh, uh, this this is this is available so you can go out and hunt this down um, mm. it's it's been bootlegged I think I think it's on YouTube uh, with, where people have dropped you know put visuals to it so uh, it's worth it's worth seeking out uh, and, and as I say if you listen to that watch Loot Watch Entertaining Mr. Sloan, not for the kiddies. It just gives you an idea of what, <laughs> what, <laughs> what just what that would have been like um, to, to have had the Beatles in a Joe Orton play. Um, so the Beatles, you know, this, 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 this question of the third Beatles movie um, still uh, hangs over them. Um, the contractual side of things, in a way, gets fulfilled by the Yellow Submarine cartoon. And, yes. you know, we could do a whole episode and we probably will at some point on the Yellow Submarine cartoon, you know, um, everything's up for grabs um, because that is a United Artists film. And the kind of the compromise agreement is, you know, the Beatles name, the Beatles likenesses, a bit of live action Beatles in the movie, which they contribute at the end and some um, unique music, some exclusive music. So that's that's how they get away with the contractual side of things. That that's it. So it's that live appearance at the end is 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 the element that satisfies the United Artists contract. So people sometimes think Let It Be is the third film, but actually, it's Yellow Submarine is is the United Artists film. But there is still a third, even even with the contractual side of things being fulfilled by that. There's still, you know, I, I guess as as the the. The, the years pass by, uh, getting another Beatles film is still something that people want to do. So there's one other big third, potential third film project that gets brought in by Dennis O'Dell, who we've all gotten to know through the Get Back, his appearances in Pete yes. Jackson's Get Back. Um, and what is Dennis O'Dell's great idea? Well, there's clearly a sense that they want to do a film. Yeah. Uh, and Dennis's idea is uh, Lord of the Rings. Of course, it's obvious, really. Um, uh, so he he gets the Beatles to read <laughs> The Lord of the Rings, isn't that right? That's right. So, you know, it's a trilogy. Uh, so he gives the Fellowship of the Ring to John, the Two Towers to McCartney, the Return of the King to Harrison. And Ringo. Poor Ringo, <laughs> no. I, he's reading no. something else. <laughs> oh, poor Ringo. Perhaps Ringo read them all. Let's Let's, Ringo exactly. read them all. You'd wonder, you would have thought maybe Lennon, they might have crossed Lennon's um, a reading list already. Yeah, I have to say I'm not a big fan. I mean, I remember, you know, at school when I was kind of 14, 15, they were books that people read, but I was not, you know, I read them much later when I was at university. I picked it up thinking, well, I really should read this. And I, you know, The Hobbit was fine, but, you know, I'm not big on I, spiders, so... <laughs> I've never uh, I've never read them I tried I got maybe about 10 20 pages into The Hobbit uh, as a teenager and mm. I was like yeah this is this is not uh, not for me really because it's I do a book I do I realised it wasn't a record or a television and I put it away <laughs> quite right yes. too um, don't read it's it it's a sad indictment of uh, I was going to say modern youth of uh, <laughs> I'm but, not a um, modern youth anymore. It's it's. Uh, I just remember there were a lot of songs 
Mm. You know, there were a lot of Falderai kind of folky <laughs> songs in them, but um, I, I, I feel fear we're hemorrhaging listeners at the moment. But um, yes, no, come back, folks, come back, because because this was you know Dennis O'Dell, who's a you know a, a producer at Apple Films, and as I said, we, we see him in Peter Jackson's Get Back. He you know produces uh, um, you know the Magic Christian that's also on his plate at the time in '68 and heading into '69. Um, he thinks that uh, this is doable and Lennon is the person who's apparently quite enthused with the notion of doing a Lord of the Rings movie yes he he seems the main, he seems to be the main driving force and uh, he seems to be the one behind suggesting Stanley Kubrick um, mm. would direct this um, so Kubrick you know unlike ourselves he likes the book uh, he, he thinks so, but he he basically said, you know, this can't be filmed. This is unfilmable um, as a live action thing. Um, and that's coming from a guy who in '68 is putting out 2001: A Space Odyssey, which is. I was going to say he's he's in the middle of uh, of producing that, and you think, man, if you if you can produce that, but not produce these people looking for jewelry or whatever, whatever happens in the rings, I don't know. That's basically it. It's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a ring gets lost down the back of a sofa and uh, I, <laughs> yes, think, I think that's it. Stretched it's over many hours. It's basically uh, help. It is help, actually, yes. Looking for a magic, yeah. powerful ring. I hadn't, I hadn't yeah. seen that before. Um, with, this, with this ring, I could control the world if I had a government grant. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so, so uh, you know, Peter Jackson, you know, we know Peter Jackson from such films as Get Back. Yes. And... Uh, so he, he talks about this, and uh, as you do at the Oscars in 2002, he bumps into Paul mm-hmm. McCartney. And uh, Jackson in, uh, gives an interview to the Wellington Post, and he says it was something John was driving and J.R.R. Tolkien still had the film rights at that stage, but he didn't like the idea of the Beatles doing it, so he killed it. There probably would have been some good songs coming off the album. And uh, I think, I don't, I don't know that I want mm. a... You know, no, a hey nonny no Beatles hobbity no, song. I don't think no, so either. No, 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 no. no. Um, yeah, he's he's um, he, 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 Peter Jackson. Kind of, yeah, he's he's he kind of picks Paul's brains. He doesn't really get much more. There was a. It seems to just have been a, a moment in time. He asks him again during the get Basks Paul again during the get back um, production sessions. What do you remember? And obviously, Paul doesn't really remember that much, uh, except that it didn't really happen. I, I can't really imagine Kubrick's working methods, his sort of repeated takes, 100 take versions would have sat very well with the four Beatles at all in order to get something meticulously made um, over a long period of time. I don't think so. But this is, but it was clearly, I think it was something that was on the cards, you know, it was penciled in. Odell mm. flies out to India when they're there to, to pitch it. Um, and then in May... 68, when John and Paul are in New York, uh, you know, there's still a question of the Beatles going to make another movie this summer. And Lennon says, well, we don't know when we're going to make it, but it will be this year or the early part of next year. And this is sort of really pre-White Album. It's May. They're they're there to launch Apple. So it's not, we're not talking about Get Back or Let It Be. or So the the only thing on the horizon that I'm aware of at this time was Lord of the Rings. Yeah. and as you say, it's in that uh, Rishi Kesh uh, setting up of Apple pre-White Album phase that they're they're kind of looking at it. Do do we know why uh, Tolkien might have said the Beatles are not getting their hands on this? Yes, I think we do. <laughs> I think we do. So why did J.R. Hartley? I mean, J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> J.R. Hartley. <laughs> Fly fishing the movie, man. I'd yeah. like to see that. Well, you know. Mm. Let's go all the way back, boys and girls, to 1953. In 1953, Tolkien purchased a house on Oxford's Sandfield Road, a quiet cul-de-sac. And in 1964, he writes a letter to a friend and he complains about, and I quote, radio, telly, dogs, scooters, buzz bikes. I'm not sure what a buzz bike is. Cars of all sizes from early morn to about 2 a.m., in addition, in a house three doors away dwells a member of a group of young men who are evidently aiming to turn themselves into a beetle group. On days when it falls to his turn to have a practice session, the noise is indescribable. So I like to think his hatred of the Beatles was because <laughs> some, someone was keeping him up, three, someone three doors down. Uh, Said he was just making too much noise. Too much noise. Living next door to William Henson, that would be... Uh, 
<laughs> Similar. Well, that wouldn't put me off anything. Um, it says that uh, John Lennon was going to play Gollum. Paul was going to play Frodo. George was going to play Gandalf. And Ringo Starr was going to play Sam. And uh, that's that's what Peter Jackson managed to find out. And you think that's, uh, that's just typecasting again? Do you think John... I mean, do you think what Gollum ended up in the, in, in the films? Do you think John would have been prepared no. to... I guess he would have liked to have been that kind of evilly kind of presence. I don't know. Um, Paul said to Peter Jackson, rather, uh, was rather gracious, uh, said to him, it's a good job we never made ours because then you wouldn't have made yours. And it was great to see yours. Uh, you know, that's nice for Paul, I guess. And what does Peter Jackson say? It's the songs I feel badly about. You guys would have banged out a few good tunes. Because <laughs> that's what, you know, they banged out a few good Just tunes. Just bang out a few tunes. Um, it's irrespective of whatever Tolkien wanted, um, United Artists did pick up the rights to the movie um, in the late 60s, you know, with a notion of, you know, just keeping it on the back burner. You know, movie studios buy up rights all the time, as you know, and it might be for indefinite periods of time to see can they get someone on board or attract someone or get something done. Um, what's interesting is, you know, when, when reading about this is, uh, you know, it does eventually appear as a movie in the late 70s uh, as a United Artist film. It's an animated feature um, from Ralph Bakshi. Um, but it's even though it's on United Artists, they don't own the rights by that point, which is kind of curious. So the, here, tell us who owns the rights, Jason. Here's my big, here's my big, it's all connected people. Okay, the reason why you could almost say that we have Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back is because of Creedence Clearwater Revival. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? When, when I draw it. It seems, <laughs> it seems logical. So, Creedence Clearwater Revival, uh, you'll all know, folks, uh, late 60s boogie rockers. Is that a bit reductive? Possibly. Um, <laughs> uh, one of oh, the parts of their... we're never going to get John Fogarty on the show now. <laughs> John Fogarty was signed um, to this, uh, and Creedence were signed to this label called Fantasy, which were owned by a guy called Saul Zantz. And Zantz uh, signed Fogarty and the band to a very, very, very bad contract for them, very good for him, where he tied up all their recordings, all their publishings, to the extent that uh, he creamed millions and millions and millions, Saul Gantz did, and John Fogarty claimed he'd never really saw much money and pursued Saul Zantz through the courts for the better part of two decades to try and uh, get his money back. Zantz Can't Dance is apparently one of the hits that uh, when a solo hit from John Fogarty, which Zantz then sued John Fogarty about, it all got very, very complex. And of course, who won? The lawyers. That's the important thing well, to remember. I was just going to say, this is the most important thing is there were lawyers, lots of lawyers', lawyers, lawyers. children, you know, got good, <laughs> good educations. But in the early 70s, uh, Saul Zantz, with his millions and millions and millions, started investing into films. And one of the films he invested in was a film called Fritz the Cat, which is an animation by a chap called Ralph Bakshi, which was a feature-length X-rated animation um, based on some crumb uh, cartoons. And this thing grossed millions and millions and millions and millions and millions. And Zantz, with his coffers full, um, you know, was, you know, a man happy to invest his money in certain projects. And Ralph Bakshi, two or three years later, he's trying to get an animated version of Lord of the Rings made. And Zantz comes along with his deep pockets to support uh, Bakshi, who made him all this money a few years earlier, and buys the rights off United Artists. And eventually they make the film and it gets sold back and distributed through United Artists. But Zantz's company, uh, up until 2022, owned the rights to the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's works as movies and video games and, and, and other ephemera. Um, and actually, as of 2022, they are selling the rights off if you want to buy them as well. So when Peter Jackson made his movies uh, at the turn of the millennium, uh, Zance is, is the rice holder. So all that stuff goes back to Creedence Clearwater Revival and it fuels Peter Jackson and f funds Wingnut Films and brings in all the money to give us the Beatles get back. It's all pretty obvious, isn't it? Excellent. I can see that. I can see that. It all, so, it all comes, comes full circle in the end. And, and I know the listeners can't see this, but I'm currently standing in front of a board with loads of red string connecting lots of different kind of points and I'm flapping my hands around wildly yeah. to try and explain you, you this to You do look like a uh, serial killer. 
<laughs> but if you do want to buy the rights of um, uh, Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, as of February 2022, they are for sale and they're looking for about 1.5 billion, maybe up to 2 billion for the rights to do all of these things. And the only thing that Zantz didn't own the rights for was a Lord of the Rings TV series, which is why we're getting a TV series of Lord of the Rings, because that's owned by totally different people. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? All goes back to the Beatles, though, really. It was all their idea in the first it's place. It's all their idea, yeah. It's all yes. their idea. Um, uh, could it have been a cartoon with the Beatles? Could the Beatles have voiced a Lord of the Rings cartoon? That might have been fun. That might have been fun. You know, but they weren't prepared to voice Yellow Submarine, so... Yeah, which is a pity. Should they have voiced Yellow Submarine? I, I think that would have been quite funny if they. I uh, think it would have been quite good. Um, so uh, we never got our third Beatles film. These are all very tempting and tantalising things of what could have been. But are we for the best that they didn't happen, really? Well, I'm thinking, really, I suppose, the next feature film that a Beatle, two Beatles were in was... Uh... Yes, Give My Regards to Broad Street. Yeah, so it's probably just just as well, really. That, my, my, uh, mental ro- my mental Rolodex was just skimming through there to see did another beetle pop up in... Uh, did we get two beetles in the Ruttles? I can't... Uh, uh, no. No, we didn't. We just got no. George. Yeah, yeah. We got, sorry, we got two, two beetles in uh, Ogner Rats. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> that's that's another episode as well. Go look at Ogner Rats, folks. That's, yeah. uh, that's fun. I mean, when you kind of think of those films, those post-help films, you know, uh, they could have... It, it, they could have made something absolutely terrible, but if they plugged into the right product, it could have been fun. You know, I'm thinking of movies like, uh, you know, there were some great movies like Blow Up or something yeah. like Bedazzled, you know, Peter Cook yes. Dudley Moore's movie. That that kind of vibe might have really been a fun thing for the Beatles to do. But then we might not have got Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. Or we might not have got the White Album or we might not have gotten so many other things. So I think by the time they got to Rishikesh, by the time they got to India, 68 they were past the stage at which they could have acted yes. in something. I think I think they had each established by that stage their own public persona. Yes. Um, you know, George with Indian music and, and you know, Paul as the kind of uh, uh, man about town and, and John and Yoko. And I, I, I think they would, they, they'd move past the stage at which they could be actors, apart from Ringo. And it also feeds into that narrative of once Brian has died, uh, you know, it is harder to try and get projects together, get projects over yeah. the line. And, you know, they are, they are, as you say, kind of filing off into their own individual destinies. And, and so the thought of them being together for any significant period of time, yet alone to make a, you know, a, a narrative film under somebody else's lead is a very hard thing to, to, to actually see them doing in 68, 69. Yeah, I think that's right. But what do you think, everybody? <laughs> Would you have liked to have seen any of those three films? Um, or did we dodge a bullet? We're available in all the usual places. The website, nothingisrealpod.com, uh, which is a portal to all things Nothing Is Real. Uh, the Twitter uh, feed, at BeatlesPod. The Nothing Is Real Facebook group, which has uh, five to 6,000 members now. It's growing daily. It's all, all the best people are on Twitter or Facebook, depending on which side of the fence you're sitting on. Um, the Instagram, which William runs, and, uh, you know, our annual TikTok is coming up soon, so look forward to that. Uh, and uh, we're always happy to hear from you all, but uh, go through the website to get uh, all the links for all the bits and pieces. And uh, uh, we want to thank all our ACAST Plus subscribers, because on ACAST Plus there are many bonus episodes and other tidbits that uh, Nothing Is Real fans can get early. Uh, but for now, uh, for Nothing Is Real, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, 
Why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.